0: in Christ. And have that out to follow along. We have made it to John 15. How about that as we fly through the Gospel of John? Somebody asked me a few weeks ago, why do you keep saying we're going so fast through the Gospel of John? It's been over a year now. And I said, David Martin Lloyd-Jones, I believe, spent 17 years in John. So this is just like light speed. So, anyways, we're starting at John chapter 15, a very famous passage in the Bible. Uh, Lots of people are familiar with it, but we don't often go very deep into what it says. Hopefully we'll do that a little bit today. Turn to John uh, 15, starting at verse one. Jesus is speaking. Remember again, the scene is the upper room. It's his uh, last night with his disciples, and he is teaching them. And he says, "I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes." If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we've come again this morning to your word. We ask that you would open our hearts and minds to hear it, believe it, to make it a part of our lives. Do this for us, in Jesus' name, amen. Everybody loves what Deborah Ricketts does, but nobody loves it while she's doing it. Everyone loves the product, but no one enjoys the process, because Deborah Ricketts is an independent researcher for the film industry. You want your movie to be accurate, you want your facts to be reliable, you send a script and a check to this former librarian and watch the facts begin to fly. Because a film that's set in the 1930s needs everything to look like the 1930s. You can't have a person reading from a newspaper that didn't exist back then, or a band playing a song that wasn't yet written. And such mistakes uh, occur in movies. Uh, How many of you saw The Raiders of the Lost Ark, the first Indiana Jones movie? Uh, In that movie, at the beginning of the movie, there was a map that charted Indiana Jones' flight uh, from one part of the world to another part of the world, and it routed him over Thailand. The problem was the movie was set in 1936, and until 1939, Thailand was called Siam. Die Hard 2. How many of you saw that? Bruce Willis makes a phone call. The setting is a Dulles International Airport, right here outside of Washington, D.C., and he goes to a payphone to make a phone call, and the payphone, the little name on it says Pacific Bell. (laughs) Deborah Ricketts lives to find these errors. That's her job. She's on a scavenger hunt for screw-ups, for flubs, and she winds her way onto the set and looks at the props and the sets and she examines everything to make sure it matches the time period, the setting of the movie. And everybody else's oversights are her undertakings. And she cuts and changes and haggles for the scriptwriter's own good. And they say the process is not pleasant but the result is very rewarding. says her job is to cut and change. God has been known to cut and change. And while we usually like the product and the results, we're not often fond of the process. And it's not that God loves to find fault. It's just God that uh, loves to find anything that impedes our spiritual growth. And Jesus portrays him as the good gardener who cuts and trims the vine. And that's what we see here at the beginning of our passage in John uh, chapter 15, verses 1 through 2. He says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Now, Jesus likely spoke these words while in the upper room or perhaps while walking with his disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane. And perhaps he saw a vine uh, hanging over a fence or draped along a wall, and he lifts up a section of the plant and explains the chain of of command in the universe. He says, God is the gardener, Jesus is the vine, we are the branches. Vines grow abundantly in Palestine, and carefully pruned, they produce sweet grapes. But left unkept, they creep everywhere and into everything, and the gardener trims the vines. Why? To keep them out of the way, or so they will bear more fruit. And God trims us for the same reason, to bear fruit. And a good gardener will do what it takes to help the vine bear fruit. Now, what fruit does God want? Well, Galatians 5 tells us uh, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Can't do that in one breath. Fruit of the Spirit, and that's what God longs to see in each of us. And like a careful gardener, he'll clip and cut away anything that interferes. And you think about it, it's not that dissimilar than life. A good track coach would look into the face of uh, his or her runners and say, you can break this record, uh, we can set this record, but this is what it's going to take, and they list out a regimen of discipline and practice. A good editor will read a manuscript and say, this work has potential, but here's what we need to cut. Rich will tell you, the writer's grown as the red ink flows. But that's what editors do. Take piano lessons. Good piano instructor will say, I think you can master this piece for the competition or for the recital. But to do so, here's the rehearsal schedule. And the pianist sighs as she sees all the hours required. This week's uh, Washington Post, there was an article on Eric Clapton. And he has a new book, uh, you know, his fourth autobiography or whatever. And uh, it was about it, and they said, he says anyone can be a musical genius. You just have to put in the same amount of time that he did, which about 10,000 hours of practice before he ever cut his first record. Deborah Rickerts studies scripts, and she says, it's good, but here's some ways to make it better. And I doubt that it's easy for a script writer to take his script over to someone like Deborah Rickerts. He knows what she's going to do. She's going to make changes. She's going to say, you can't say that. You have to say this instead. He knows that she's on the hunt for errors, for mistakes, for things that don't work but he also knows the end result will be a better story. And it's certainly not easy for us to turn over our lives to the gardener. Even now, some of you may be hearing uh, the snips of his pruning shears. Some of you may be feeling his pruning shears. And it hurts. So why go through it? It's not just to become better. The dominant word in this passage of Scripture in these 11 verses is the word abide. And that's what we need to focus on, so let's do that. We're going to start with the need for us to abide to be pruned. Abide to be pruned. First blank there, verse 1. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean, and that word clean has the same root word as the word prunes. They're connected. Already you are clean, you have been pruned because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. So the first thing we see is we must abide in Christ because he says, I am the true vine. In the Old Testament, there are numerous passages which state that Israel is the vine. And the fact that Israel was thought of in terms of a vine reinforced Jesus' use of this image. An example would be from Isaiah 5, and there's numerous examples. This is just one, Isaiah 5, 7. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. The grapevine is a symbol of national life. The emblem that appeared on the coins minted during the Maccabean period, which is the period before Christ, their regard for the grapevine uh, was so great that they put that, that's what was on their coins. And their regard was so great, it somewhat resembles our regard for the stars and stripes. It's a grand symbol of national life. And in John 15, 1, Jesus gives his seventh and final great I am statement. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. And all conversation stops at this powerful pronouncement. The force of his words are, you all know how Israel is pictured as a vine that is meant to produce refreshing fruit. Well, I'm the fulfillment of all that that symbol suggests. Now that Jesus has come, he's fulfilled the Old Testament promises, and now he claims that he's the vine. Not just another vine, but the true vine. Now, to Christian believers, this is a wonderfully deep and, and almost mystic parable. Christ is the vine, we are the branches, God the Father is the gardener. And the picture taken together is that of a vineyard with true believers who are organically related to Christ. And the sap that runs in his veins runs in ours. And of the Father walking among the vines, lovingly caring for them so they will bring forth fruit. And if we abide in anything else or anyone else other than Christ, then we're putting our lives into the hands of a false god. Jesus says that he is the vine. We are the branches. Jesus produces the fruit. It's our job simply to remain connected to him and to bear the fruit that he produces. But if fruit is the sign of a real Christian, the alternative is dead wood. And dead wood isn't worth having around. It gets in the way. It causes problems for the rest of the branches, so it gets cut off. I was able to visit a vineyard uh, this summer, and the owner of the vineyard talked to us about harvesting the grapes and when to pick the grapes and how to get the very best grapes in the vineyard. And she said that uh, not only do they cut off all the dead stuff, but they also cut away, you know, the bad grapes and the weak grapes. So it's only left with the good grapes so they will grow better and bigger and produce more. And they go through a round of pruning where they look at every branch. They examine every branch by hand. And they actually have, um, and I don't remember what you call professional vineyard folks, but they go through and everything of grapes hanging there, uh, they look at, are these good? Are these the way they're supposed to be? And if the answer is no, out come the pruning shears. And they decide what to prune and where to prune. They also decide what needs to stay. And if you go to a real grapevine, uh, a real vineyard, you'll learn that it's difficult to cut off a good fruit-bearing branch. It's stubbornly entrenched in the vine. But if you find a branch that isn't bearing fruit, you can break it off with your hands. Why? Because it only has a superficial attachment to the vine. There is no vital life-giving relationship. And, uh, you know, the, the comparison is clear, that there are people today who claim to be Christians, who claim to be believers in Christ, followers of Christ, but who merely have a superficial attachment to the vine. They look like a branch, they act like a branch, they're covered with the leaves of a branch, but there's no fruit. There's no vital, life-giving relationship, and God says He's going to cut them off. However, for those people who know Christ, whose daily life is the difficult adventure of following Christ and reading His Word, they won't be cut off. They're stubbornly entrenched in the vine, and they're bearing fruit. But God says they'll be pruned, not cut off, Just cut back so that they'll be even more fruitful. Now, why do the good branches get cut back? I understand why, you know, you cut off the bad branches or the dead branches, but why cut back the good branches? I may be going out on a limb here, but (laughs) it's not even in here, I just... My guess is there are some things in your life that ought not to be there. Good guess, bad guess. And part of the way that God deals with us is he takes them away. And yes, sometimes that hurts. And it's hard to tell people that part of God's plan for you involves that at some point you're going to hurt probably at many points, you're going to hurt. You know, it's, it's football season now, and they, they trot out all these old football stars as commentators, guys that played a long time ago, and uh, they had Roger uh, Staubach on. He's a former quarterback for a team that's going to lose this afternoon. Um, <laughs> they asked him about football injuries because there was a lot of injuries lately at old... Bunch of football players, and they say, How do you keep playing football when you're hurt? And he just said, If you're not playing hurt, you're not playing football. And I thought about that. I said, That'll preach. <laughs> it's not much different in the Christian life. If you're not living it hurt, probably not living the Christian life. According to verse 3, It says, already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. God prunes us or cleanses us. Remember, I said those two words are related. Through his word, David said, Psalm 119, before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. And again, Psalm 119, verse 71, it is good for me that I was afflicted, that I might learn your statutes. I know a lot of you have affliction on your prayer request list because you know that'll be good for you. So I don't have to go and check that. But what comes into our life? Affliction. He says, God's word, that we would learn his statutes. And of course, Hebrews 4 tells us, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is God's, scalpel. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, a great preacher of the 19th century, said, it is the word that prunes the Christian. It is the truth that purges him. The scripture made living and powerful by the Holy Spirit, effectively cleansing the Christian. See, affliction is the handle of the knife. Affliction is the grindstone that sharpens the word. Affliction is the dresser that removes all of our soft garment and lays bare our diseased flesh so the surgeon's knife can get to it. Affliction merely makes us ready to feel the word. Not just to hear the word, but to feel it. The true pruner is the word, and it's in the hands Of the great vine dresser. And God lifts up a branch of his vine and says, You can be fruitful, but I'm going to have to clip some diseased leaves. And although the process is painful, we can see on the soil below us all the greenery that he's clipped away arrogance and vain ambitions and bad relationships and dangerous opportunities, even revenge. And he cuts it off. And does God take that process lightly? I don't think so. He makes a serious statement, verse 2. Every branch of mine that does not bear fruit, he takes away. Now, that verb, takes away, is from the Greek word airo, A-I-R-O. It has at least two meanings. One is to cut off, and the other is to lift up. And I think both are implied. See, before God cuts a fruitless branch, he lifts it up. And a gardener does that. He'll reposition a fruitless branch so it can get more sun and more space. Because grapes are not like squash or pumpkins. They don't develop while lying on the ground. They grow better hanging free. And a good vine dresser will stretch out the vine on the arbor to afford, afford it more air and sun. And sometimes God does that with us, too. You've seen uh, gardeners realign a plant or line it up so it'll grow better. You've probably seen God realign a life. A family uprooted and transferred to another city, was it so they could learn to trust God? A healthy person who's suddenly sick, was it to remind him or her to rely on the gardener? An income stream dries up, This is God's way of lifting you out of the need uh, to depend on yourself, lifting you out of the soil of self, drawing you closer to him. God is up to something. He is a busy, active gardener who's cleaning and clearing the field and removing the stones and cutting back the branches And he constructs the trellises and plants the seeds and inspects the plants and pulls the weeds. And most of all, he is good. He is the good gardener who cares for his vine. And we are pruned so that we may bear fruit. And that's the second reason we must abide. We must abide to bear fruit. Verse 5, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. The branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Now, when Jesus talks about fruit, he's talking about us becoming more like him. God gives you a mirror in the Word of God to see yourself the way you really are. But He doesn't stop there. He also gives you an image of Christ. And He says only um, that He's going to take you from the first image, you in the mirror, and make you like the second image, the image of Christ. And to be like Christ means to bear Christ like fruit. So, what are we to do? We're the branches. On the vine? What's our response? How do we react? An answer commonly given at this point is uh, to point to the command, Bear fruit. But is that the right response? I mean, answer the question in a garden if the branch is fruitless, does it help if the gardener demands fruit? Or if you are the branch, will you bear fruit just by resolving to do so? You know, you close your Knobby eyes and grit your wooden teeth and strain until your bark turns red. Can you will a grape into existence? No. The branch cannot make fruit. And you can't either. Some of you have tried, and you've tried hard with resolve in your eyes and grit in your teeth. You've tried today, I will be happy. I'm going to be patient now. Okay, I'll be a cheerful giver. Give me this stupid collection plate. I'll forgive that jerk if it kills me. Can't force fruit. You can't make it. And that's why nowhere in this text does Jesus tell you to go out and bear fruit. That's right. Nowhere does he command you to bear fruit. You can go ahead and look. I did. It ain't there. What does he command us to do? You have to read John 15 for yourself. Look at this. Verse 4, abide in me. Verse 4, you abide in me. Verse 5, whoever abides in me. Verse 6, if anyone does not abide in me, he's thrown away. Verse 7, if you abide in me. Verse 9, abide in my love. Verse 10, you will abide in my love. If repetition... Is the key to making it clear to us what's really important, then Jesus thinks this whole matter of abiding in Him is really important. Notice that Jesus says no branch can bear fruit by itself, it simply must remain in the vine. It's Jesus who does the work. He causes the fruit to be born in our lives. We simply abide in the vine. That's the only way we can see the fruit of the Spirit come forth in our lives. The branch doesn't produce the fruit. It doesn't make the fruit. It bears the fruit the vine produces. Now, you can try to bear fruit all by yourself, but apart from Christ, it's fake. It's like that plastic fruit that you see. It looks good, but there's no nourishment there. It's just for show. On our refrigerator at home, we have these little rubber magnets um, that are shaped like food. And at various times, we've had a rubber cookie, we've had a rubber Snickers bar, we've had a rubber pickle, and so on. And every one of the kids, when they were toddlers, would take the cookie or the candy bar off the refrigerator and try to eat it. And now the grandkids are trying to eat that stuff. And it's just as funny the second time around. They do, they look real. And they're right there at their height level. We don't put them up high, you know, we're mean. But none of them can eat it. It's a rubber magnet. And they look at you like, what kind of mean trick is this? And they don't understand it's not real. Now, one caveat here is that Cincinnati, the big yellow dog, has no problem eating any of these. She doesn't care that they're not real. In fact, the cookie is missing. Back to the text. Jesus says, verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. See, Christ is the source of life, the source of nourishment, the source of fruit. We get our spiritual vitality from him, not from anywhere else. He says, apart from him, it's impossible to bear fruit. But when you're abiding in him, it's inevitable that you'll bear fruit. Again, why? Look at verse 5. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. Now this phrase, much fruit, comes from two Greek words, polycarpon. And it's from this text that polycarp, the great early church father, was named. His name means much fruit. And he became a great martyr of the church, one of the great early church fathers. Although I don't know who names their kid much fruit. Some things just don't translate well. But he did. That was his name, Polycarp. He was named after this text. Well, let me ask you, you satisfied with just a little fruit? You satisfied with the attainment that you've made the progress in your union with Christ? Because Jesus wants from you not just a little fruit, but he wants much fruit. The normal state of the disciple is one of fruitfulness. A life of love, joy, peace, and all those other things I can't say in one breath. Jesus isn't looking for fruit simply from a few great saints. He expects each one of us to live a fruitful life. And it's an altogether reasonable expectation because it doesn't depend on our talents. It doesn't depend on our abilities. It depends on our contact, our connection with the Lord. The branch doesn't, Uh, have the right to receive life from the vine. It doesn't earn the right, I should say, to receive life from the vine. It just abides in the vine, and it receives life as a result of the relationship. And Jesus says, verse 7, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, why does he say that? Because if you're in Christ, and Christ's words are in you, then you will ask in his will, and he's already told us those prayers will be answered. So our task is clear. Stay close to the vine. As long as we do this, we'll be fruitful. Life comes through the vine. Apart from the vine, the branch does nothing. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. Now think about that. Actually, there's a lot of things we can do without Christ. We can earn a living. We can raise a family. We can practice generosity. It's even possible to pastor a church without abiding. It's possible to counsel people without abiding. So what does Christ mean? He means that we cannot bear spiritual fruit without him. I mean, you can tie fruit onto your lives like ornaments on a Christmas tree but the real fruit of his character comes from the vine itself. We can do nothing without him. We cannot be loving or patient or faithful or holy. And that's why God doesn't shield us from all the assaults of life, but rather exposes us to them so we'll learn to hold fast to him. We abide to be pruned. We abide to bear fruit. But to be honest, those are easier said than done. The big question is why. Why should we abide to be pruned? We know it's painful. Why should we abide to bear fruit? Can't do it by ourselves. we much rather do it by ourselves. So why? Because when we abide in Christ, then we are abiding in his love. In his love. Verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And here Christ's emphasis is on love. It follows naturally, since love is a fruit of the Spirit. In fact, it's the chief fruit, 1 Corinthians 13 says, Now faith, hope, and love abide. These three, but the greatest of these is love. And Jesus speaks of love in verse 9 when he says, As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. There's a couple parts to that verse if you look at it. The first part is a, is a, a declaration. So have I loved you. Those are wonderful words to hear Uh, at any time, if they're true. I loved you. I've loved you from the moment I first set eyes upon you. I'll always love you. It's the basis of any good marriage. When the love expressed is the fullest measure of the love, it's the basis of a Christian home and the love between uh, parents and children. In a different sense, it's the basis of friendship and fellowship um, in the church. But if this is true, when the words are spoken by men and women... How much more wonderful are these words when they're spoken by the Lord Jesus Christ and when we are the ones being loved? And we move to a whole nother level when it's Jesus looking at you and saying, As, uh, so have I loved you. That's astonishing love. There's nothing in us that can cause it. We're sinners. Jesus is holy. We've rebelled against God. Nevertheless, Jesus loves us. We have a declaration of love here. We also have the measure of love in this verse because he says, as the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now, I suppose we'd rejoice in the love of Christ even if his love was kind of a half-hearted thing. For Jesus to love us at all would be remarkable. But it's not what he says. Jesus says that he has loved us, not with an imperfect love or even with a perfect human love, but rather with the greatest love there is, the love that's existed within the being of the Godhead, the Trinity, from all eternity, and which will exist to all eternity. The love of God the Father for God the Son. He says, as the Father has loved me... So have I loved you. Is there a greater love than that? I couldn't come up with another answer. Is there a greater love than the love of God the Father for God the Son? And that's the kind of love that Jesus says he loves you with. This love is without beginning or end. It's really without measure. It's without change. It's according to this love that Christ loves us. I think that's amazing. And so I was thinking about that as I was trying to come up with a conclusion and failing miserably. If I thought, what does that love look like? What does it look like? I'm not sure a lot of people know what that kind of love looks like. Well, all you have to do is look in the Gospels and look at the life of Jesus. Jesus has given us picture after picture after picture of what his love looks like, of what his love does, of how his love changes us. I want to take a look at one of those pictures. Just take a moment. Let's look at Simon and that woman. The scene comes to us from Luke chapter 7. There is a Pharisee named Simon, and there is a woman, an unsavory woman, one of those women. And she's with Jesus, And there in Simon's house, Luke chapter 7, Simon has asked him a question about that woman. And like, why have you let her in my house, kind of a question. It says, and Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain money lender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other fifty. When they could not pay, he he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, "The one I suppose for whom he canceled the larger debt." And he said to him, "You have judged rightly." Then, turning to the woman, he said to Simon, "Do you see this woman?" Isn't that an obvious question? I mean, she's right there. Simon's right here, and Jesus is here do you see this woman? Of course he sees this woman, but not really. Jesus says, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. She loved much, but he who is forgiven little loves little. That woman understood what the love of Christ means. She lavished love on Christ, bathing his feet with tears, drying his feet with her hair. If love was a waterfall, she'd be Niagara. But not Simon. Simon is the Sahara Desert. Dry, parched heart, his arid heart surprises us. After all, he's the churchgoer, the pastor, the Sunday school teacher. She, on the other hand, is essentially the town slut. He'd forgotten more Bible verses than she's ever known. But she discovered one truth that Simon somehow has missed. God's love has no limits. Did she deserve God's love? Nope. Do we deserve God's love? Nope. Does he love us because of our goodness? Does he love us because of our kindness? Does he love us because of our great faith? No, God loves us because of his goodness and his kindness and his great faith. John says it like this, 1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Does that verse, that thought comfort you? It should. Because it lets us know in no uncertain terms that God's love does not hinge on your love. The abundance of your love does not increase his love. The lack of your love does not diminish his love. Your goodness doesn't enhance his, nor does your weakness dilute it. What Moses said to Israel all the way back in Deuteronomy is what God is saying to us. That verse in Deuteronomy says, It was not because you were more in number than the other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. God loves you simply because he has chosen to do so. And he loves you when you don't feel lovely. And he loves you when no one else loves you. And others may abandon you or divorce you or ignore you, but God will always love you. Always, no matter what. All we have to do is abide in Christ. And the more tightly we're attached to Jesus, the more purely his love can pass through us. And what a love it is. Patient, kind, does not envy, does not boast, is not proud. And that's from 1 Corinthians 13. You've heard that passage before, but look in your outline. Get it out, open it up. Look in it. Because 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 and 8 are there waiting for you to rewrite. Not with your name and not with Jesus' name, but with both names. And I want you to read it And I want you to write your name in the blanks and see what you think. Christ in me is patient. Christ in me is kind. Christ in me does not envy. Christ in me does not boast. And so on. Write your name in there. And read it. And take it home. Cut it out. Put it in your wallet. Put it on the fridge or in your car where you're going to see it. I mean, will we ever love like that? Will we ever love perfectly? No. This side of heaven only God will, but we will love better than we have. When kindness comes grudgingly, we'll remember his kindness to us and ask him to make us more kind. When patience is scarce, we'll thank him for his and ask him to make us more patient. When it's hard to forgive, we won't list all the times we've been given grief. Rather, we'll list all the times that we've been given grace and pray to become more forgiving. We'll receive first so we can give later. We love because he first loved us. Now, Simon may not tell you that, but there's a woman who will. Think about that. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that and I'll close. Heavenly Father, there are so many connections here, and we don't usually see them all. We want to believe, but we don't know how believing is connected to abiding in Christ, and we don't know how that's connected to keeping his commandments, and we don't know how that's connected to being loving and to being loved. And we read these. Words, and sometimes we just miss the point. Father, I pray that you would remind us again. Remind us as we come to this table of your great love for us. Not that we loved you, but that you lo- loved us and sent your Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sin. That's a picture of great love. Help us understand how much we are loved. Help us understand when we come to this table how much we are loved. Help us understand when that your word addresses us as beloved, you really mean it. Do this for each of us. In Jesus' name, Amen. Uh, offering now and a song and we can go get the kids to bring them in and then we'll have communion.